Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host of uh, Alzheimer's Speaks, and uh, I welcome you today. We're going to have a fantastic conversation, and I can't wait to tell you more about a brand new book out called The Alzheimer's Medical Advisor. It really, truly is a caregiver guide. Um, but before I introduce our guest today and um, get into our line of questions, um, we always are getting new listeners. And so I like to let people know a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks, who we are and what we do. And bottom line, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose as well as those that are caring for them. Our core um, belief is really all wrapped in collaboration. Uh, we truly feel that's the only way we're going to win this battle is to get everybody involved because pretty much everyone is touched by this disease. Um, and it, they're kind of shocked once the conversation starts. Um, and I know that the collaboration is happening out there. I know it's much slower than I'd like to see it, but I can tell you the wheels are spinning much faster. Um, just had a uh, conversation with colleagues today about how much really has changed, and um, it's pretty exciting times. I think that what we're going to see in the next five years happening um, in the area of dementia and caregiving. And these collaborations are really important, and they can be big and they can be small. For example, here at Alzheimer's Speaks, um, because of your likes, your clicks, your shares with your Twitter tribes, your Facebook um, friends, your LinkedIn colleagues, your Pinterest peeps, um, you know, all that social media stuff that just takes us a second to engage has had a huge impact on Alzheimer's Speaks. I truly believe that's why we were named the number one influencer online um, regarding Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And I also believe that's, you know, how Maria Shriver um, got a hold of us and um, called us an architect of change for humanity was because we are pushing out a lot of different content. Our, our goal is to raise all voices. So those with dementia, those caring for them, professionals, researchers, advocates, um, authors, movie directors, singers, songwriters, um, everybody who has been touched and who is trying to make a difference um, and uh, has something to say is welcome to be on, on our show. So if that is you, please reach out to me at Lori at Alzheimer's Speaks, and I'd be glad to talk with you. And again, for those of you who continue to share our resources, thank you so much. We have not just the, um, the radio show here, but we have the blog. We have Dementia Chats, which are videos where I interview people with dementia, um, you know, the, the resources just kind of go on and on. So I won't bore you with all those. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you'll be able to find out a little bit more about that. 
Uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to a couple of um, great partners we have here. One is the Alzheimer's Research Prevention uh, Foundation. They just do phenomenal work. They're located in Arizona, but they have a big impact um, around the country and around the world. And they're doing some really cool stuff right now with meditation. They really take a holistic approach to the disease. And then I'd also like to give a shout out to the uh, Call Alert uh, Center which is something very inexpensive, but it's a great tool if you're concerned of anybody ever wandering who has dementia. You can uh, register them for about $15 a year. And if that crisis would occur, you just contact them, and a flyer gets disseminated digitally. They work with the police departments. It's, it's pretty fascinating. They also have ones for pets and children and things, too. So it's not just people with dementia who, who can become lost um, or disoriented. And last, before I introduce our guests, I just want to remind people that we do have our um, fabulous um, cruise to the Bahamas in the Caribbean coming up November 11th through the 18th. And again, that is for people with early to mid memory loss and their care partners. We're getting a lot of families signing up. We have four people highlighted that actually are living with dementia who are going to be speakers for our symposium. Uh, Harry Urban, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shearer, and Mary Reed. Um, along with myself and Cindy Lazinski, who is heading up a um, dementia-friendly movement in Northern Colorado. And we also have um, Becky Watson with us, who will be a music therapist, which is pretty, pretty cool. So we are very excited about that. Again, it's November 11th through the 18th. Again, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, and you'll be able to find out more about, uh, about the cruise. There's a program you can download, and uh, you can get a hold of Kathy Schof, who is our travel agent coordinating our our group. Um, so we would love for you to join us. So um, let's move on, because today I, I'm really excited about this book, and we are so lucky to have Dr. Philip Sloan with us. Um, he is the Elizabeth and um, Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and co-director of the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services um, and research at the University of Northern Colorado um, at Chapel Hill. His clinical work and research has included a strong emphasis on Alzheimer's disease for decades, and he co-developed um, a bathing without a battle and mouth care without a battle, um, which were both two nationally recognized programs to teach techniques of person-centered care and boy, I wish I would have known about that with my mom. <laughs> and maybe we'll get into that conversation even a little later, though our main focus is going to be his new book. Um, he has just received um, lots of accolades. And in 2004, he received the Pioneer Award from the National Alzheimer's Association. Um, so again, today we're going to be talking about his brand new book, um, The Alzheimer's Medical Advisor. And it's a caregiver guide to common medical and behavioral signs and symptoms in uh, persons uh, with dementia. So welcome today. How are you, Dr. Sloan? I'm great. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
Well, thank you, and and thanks to Sunrise River Press too for printing uh, printing this book. I when I got it delivered and I sat down in my house, I just I literally said, "Wow!" to myself. This is really designed very well, and it's going to be easy for people to use. So. Um, why don't you give us a little um, history? A lot of times I ask my guests, you know, have you personally been touched by dementia in your family or circle of friends at all? People like to know that, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure, sure. I do want to say one thing, though. I probably made a mistake in saying that I was from UNC because it turns out there are two UNCs. Oh. There's University of Northern Colorado, which I'm not from, and University of North Carolina, which I am from. Mm. And, uh, so I just wanted to correct that um, on the basis of, you know, for my school. But um, to return to your question, um, you know, every family has um, people with cognitive impairment, um, dementia. My mother died at age 98. Um, and the, the doctor put in the death certificate Alzheimer's disease. And my brother was very upset. <laughs> she didn't have Alzheimer's disease. Well, she certainly has some memory loss. Uh, and um, she was able to maintain her values and uh, maintain her sense of humor, but um, she had kind of impairment as well. Mm-hmm. My father-in-law, um, we um, had here in town with us for many years, and he had, um, as a doctor, and I have to argue about what the d- diagnosis was, it was probably a vascular dementia rather than an Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. but uh, Regardless, he had many of the same issues, and um, so he also has passed away. Okay, so definitely been touched uh, by it in in your own family. Why don't you talk to us about um, your book here and um, give us maybe a little better understanding of why you've done research um, in the area of of caregivers of people you know with Alzheimer's or different types of of dementia and um, and what have you learned through through your research? Well, people who work with um, folks with Alzheimer's disease realize that caregivers caregiving is different when someone has a cognitive problem and has you know has difficulty making decisions because it means that the caregiver themselves has to manage not just the the Alzheimer's disease but other things, medical problems. Um, and behavioral symptoms and things that are just what we call nonspecific problems. And so, for example, if someone has high blood pressure or heart disease or lung disease, a caregiver has to take over management of these conditions and has to make sure medications are purchased and taken correctly, schedule doctor appointments, monitor things like blood pressure and weight. Um, and then another thing is that going to the doctor or the emergency department, it's often not a simple matter. You know, people with dementia can refuse to go, they get agitated when they get there, have bad events happen because of confusion. And um, in this context, the average, we, we did some research and we found that in a six month period, the average person with dementia will require the family caregiver to manage seven new or worsening symptoms. So stuff is coming up, caregivers have to do things with it. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a lot. And I I think it's, you know, something that people really don't understand um, or appreciate really until it hits them. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I hear from people is, 
that are caring for a loved one uh, with dementia, they don't know how to explain what it is they even do or what their life is like because it's just, it's so different and people try to make almost excuses going, oh, well, I lose my keys or I do this or, and, and they feel almost um, mentalized or, or marginalized um, in that conversation, you know, that it's just yeah, uncomfortable uh-huh. for others to, to talk about. And so it's like, well, we'd rather just pretend that everything's okay and then we don't have to go deep at all, you know, with it. And, and that really doesn't help anybody. Um, we all know that Alzheimer's can really lead to a lot of different type of behavioral symptoms that aren't necessarily medical symptoms. Um, what are your thoughts regarding that regarding that line? Because there's such controversy now over medication and, and uh, you know, do you give it for a behavior? Is it a behavior or do we need to start calling it a reaction? Because we all have reactions. We just call it a behavior when we don't like it. Mm-hmm. Well... Um, first of all, behavioral symptoms, I like to call them behavioral symptoms because they're symptoms of some underlying need mm-hmm. or some underlying feeling or some underlying kind of emotion. And so they're not behaviors, they're representing something else. Mm-hmm. And um, often what family members have to do is they're, they have to be detectives because they have to figure out what that something else is. And one of the tough things is that um, Behavioral symptoms may occur for medical reasons, or they can occur because of an underlying kind of anxiety or because of physiological need. And um, so it, it turns out that behavioral symptoms are just one type of symptoms, mm-hmm. but in fact, they all have to be thought of as possibly due to a whole variety of things. We, in our research, we divided symptoms into what we call organ-specific symptoms. We, you know, if somebody has diarrhea, you kind of know what part of the body it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody has a red eye, you kind of know what part of the body. So they're, organ, they're coming from organ system. And then we have the behavioral symptoms, which are exactly what you know, we talk about. They're things like you're getting more confused or agitated or you know, having delusions, um, getting aggressive with care providers. And then the third category of symptoms are what we call nonspecific symptoms. So in our research, we've learned a lot about these. And one of the things we found is that um, when we followed these caregivers, we followed 146 caregivers for six months. Mm-hmm. 90% reported organ-specific symptoms that they had to deal with within that six months. 89% reported behavioral symptoms they had to deal with. And 88% reported non-specific symptoms. And talking about new or worsening, I mean, They've already been dealing with these. Mm-hmm. And so what it means is that everybody has to deal with these different classifications. And um, so we've done a lot of kind of work around that. And we, for example, divide behavioral symptoms into what we call active behaviors and passive behaviors. Uh-huh. And active ones are things you know, like hitting or collaring or asking questions or doing things. And um, some people will say, you know, sometimes maybe that's not such a bad thing because at least the person is expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the passive behaviors are things like withdrawal or um, kind of just um, not drinking or not eating, not doing things. Um, and those often don't, you know, when you look, look in the web or look for materials for caregivers, there's a lot of stuff about dealing with active symptoms. 
Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do about agitation? What do you do about wandering? Uh, the passive symptoms don't get much attention, but it turns out they often are associated with kind of a significant problem, whether it's depression or whether it's a new medical problem, um, pain, this type of thing. And so one of the things I like to emphasize is just because somebody's not kind of in your face causing a problem doesn't necessarily mean that there's something going on. Mm-hmm. And then the third category, I just want to say a minute about the non-specific ones. They're the toughest of all. You know, like um, we don't know what it is. We don't know if it's an emotional thing or if it's a medical thing. You know, let's say somebody is not eating well, so they're just they, they don't feel like eating, and um, figuring out what to do with that um, is one of the toughest things that caregivers face. Yeah, it, and it's very frustrating. I mean, you hear that from people all the time going, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's causing this. And, um, you know, it's just, it's an avalanche of, of stress that um, takes over the care partner and, you know, isn't healthy for the person who is exhibiting the behaviors because, you know, something's wrong and, mm-hmm. and something isn't isn't clicking there. Um, how... You know, how is um, having dementia in these types of symptoms, the active, the inactive, and the nonspecific, how is that different from, you know, other diseases in terms of learning to manage as a, as a care partner and as a person maybe with the disease? Mm-hmm. I think the difference is for the caregiver more so than for the person, because we all have this kind of thing, you know, you know, you got a headache, you know. It, it's probably, you know, some, well, actually, headache is more nonspecific because anything can cause a headache in a way. Um, but if you've got abdominal pain, it's probably not coming from your head. It's probably not coming from your foot. Um, and we do a lot of that sorting ourselves. Mm-hmm. We think about it. But when you're working with someone who has dementia, especially as it becomes advanced, um, the communication is real indirect and it's often not very clear. And so, um, the whole communication issue makes caregiving very difficult, this whole kind of being like a detective. Mm-hmm. And then I really believe in, in Alzheimer's and other dementias, nonspecific symptoms then become more and more common. If somebody just, they're not, they're not moving around today. So what's that about? And um, sometimes they can tell you and sometimes it's not real clear. Um, and um, another thing is real difficult for caregivers is a whole issue of kind of the behavioral responses um, because they're often unexpected. You know, if somebody becomes irritated if you're asking them questions or they become agitated if you're trying to do something to help them. And, um, you know, if somebody's neck hurts, you know, for most of us, you know, a massage, well, it depends. At least you can, say, we can say whether a massage will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in some other work, we found that the physical act of touching someone with Alzheimer's disease has to be done with care. Because if, if they don't know why you're touching, if you just come up and you touch them from behind, they can get really agitated. Yeah. Um, and so, you, and you know this, um, that um, the simplest things that we normally do, we have to do with more care. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're talking about is kind of how to assess these kinds of things. Um, now you did this, you had your, you, you work with your mom for a long time? My mom had dementia for 30 years. So she started having symptoms in her mid fifties and lived to 86. Mm-hmm. So and, you went through the, kind of the whole 
course. Oh, the from, whole gamut, yeah. <laughs> you know, from when she could tell you maybe even too much to when it got harder and harder to know what she was saying. Exactly. You really had to, I found I really had to learn to rely on nonverbals, which I didn't realize I wasn't doing a good job at. And, mm. and that, you know, the more I researched, it kind of shocked me because more than three quarters of our communication is nonverbal. And I think, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of us have learned to push it away because we're moving so fast trying to get tasks done. Mm -hmm. And we're not, we're not being present enough to, to just observe. And like you said, you know, be an investigator, um, you know, get the sheriff's hat out and try to figure out, you know, what's the pattern here? What's caused this? Instead, we make judgments and we quickly, we're, we're looking for kind of a quick fix and we're missing some of the, the processing time. And that was one of the biggest lessons I think I learned was to slow down, shut up, <laughs> observe, mm -hmm. and, and really process. It didn't need to be fixed immediately, um, but really try to go for the right thing instead of a quick thing. And, and that was a big difference for me. And that's such a good point that uh, sometimes just letting, letting time um, help make the decision for you is is a real useful thing mm -hmm. uh, although it, it can be scary we know in the caregivers we work with we, before we developed the book i should mention we developed a website mm -hmm. and we had we spent we spent years developing it making it evidence-based and kind of we had a whole bunch of people including a lot of students work on kind of assembling the evidence um and um what we found is that if people had the information in front of them caregivers um it improved their confidence. It made them feel better about doing the job, uh -huh. which is a really important thing because it's not easy on your confidence to, to, to take care of somebody with Alzheimer's because you're never 100%, you know, accurate. No, no. And yet, and yet you're, all, you're almost always doing a better job than anybody else would possibly do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things, too, that, that I learned through my journey was that I um, I always thought things had to be, like, perfect, that I had to have the, the perfect answer and, and do everything just right. And yet, in the rest of my life, as much as I might strive for that, I knew it, was, it wasn't. And, and yet, I added this extra pressure as a care partner to be more perfect. Um, and, and I, you know, when I analyze that, I think... I don't know if it was um, subconscious or conscious, but I knew that there were more eyes looking at me, watching how I was caring for my mom. And, and I, um, I, you know, I, I think unconsciously I knew there was more judgment um, coming from that place too, which, which was kind of interesting because I do think that it impacts us in terms mm -hmm. of what we do and how we do it. And, you know, some people do really well at tests when they're under pressure and others freak out and don't get one thing right. And so that pressure, I think, affects all of us in, in a different fashion. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in learning, um, you know, what you feel some of the toughest situations are for a family and, and how do they face them? How do they deal with them? Can you give us some examples? Sure, sure. Um, I think some of the toughest things are things that people just don't understand, um, which... Um, for example, in the behavioral realm, you know, a person fights their care, you know, such as bathing or changing clothes, figuring out what to do and kind of 
how to make it go more smoothly is one of the is one of many challenges. Um, another common situation family caregivers face is this whole thing about oh, could it be a urine infection? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of general, and we're we're beginning to realize it's more of a it's a, it's more of a myth than you would like to believe. You know that anything could be a urine infection. Well, it turns out we overtreat urine infections because people think that way. And so now trying to figure out, you know, is it, but is it an infection that's developing or is it just they're having a bad day? Mm -hmm. uh, another common thing, because injuries, um, we have, we have um, in our research, we learned what were the most common things that presented and, um, or that led to trips to the emergency department. And skin injuries were big, way up on the list. And so, or just falling, you know, somebody falls and they hurt. And the family member has to say, is, is the person injured badly enough to spend six hours in the emergency department getting an x-ray? Or can I just sit on it for a little bit? And, um, and if, if they go to the emergency room, then the emergency department is like, how can you keep the person from making a scene? Mm -hmm. And um, so that's a tough thing for family members. And anything having to do with falls, injury, this type of thing. And then um, another one kind of high on my list is very advanced disease. You know, when the person, um, and it, there's no single pattern, but when the person doesn't communicate very well and they can't move around much, they may be bedridden, chair bound, uh, may not respond that much to the environment, may not know you by name. And a tough issue is whether to advise treatment or refuse treatment or, you know, or have an evaluation, you know, when any new symptom arises and kind of how to deal with things kind of as the journey is getting near its conclusion. Those are all tough things and there's plenty more. Well, and I think with those two, it's so critical for families to have conversations ahead of time. Um, you know, with my mom, I mean, we did the healthcare directives and we sat down and we had those tough conversations about, about life and about death and how did she want that to look? Um, what did she want treatment for? What didn't she want um, treatment for? And then, you know, did she want, you know, a do not resuscitate? Um, you know, do we give her a shot if she gets pneumonia towards the end to get rid of the pneumonia so she can live longer in her end stages? You know, what we had those tough conversations. And I remember even, you know, putting my mom on hospice and kind of going through all the paperwork again with my with the nurse uh, where my mom lived. And um, even though my mom was sleeping and didn't communicate much at all, um, when the nurse left the room, I, you know, just full of tears said, Ma, did I do the right thing? And I knew, I knew what she wanted. We had these discussions, you know, um, but I just needed to hear her voice again. And out of this dead sleep, my mom turned, looked at me, and looked at me square in the eye and went, yep, and went right back to sleep. And that's all she said. <laughs> but she just knew that I needed, I needed that reassurance in that moment, that that's what she wanted. And, and you know, that was a gift. Not everybody can do that. But um, I, I really encourage people to have these conversations, um, you know, when, when things uh, start out, when it's early onset. Um, because we don't have these tough conversations. And... If we don't take the time to do them early, we can't, you know, we can't necessarily meet their needs because we don't even know what they are. And that's, that's so right, because um, the principle we talk about is substituted judgment, you know, 
you're you have to if you have to make a judgment for them your judgment really is about how they would want to mm -hmm. decide if they could and uh, you have to know what they think yep. what they believe Ex and go ahead uh, exactly and it's um i was shocked at some of the things my mom told me i had no idea you know um i mean even like for burial um, you know, did she want to be cremated or not? I mean, that surprised a lot of people, her answer, you know, um, and it was like, well, that, that's a pretty important piece, you know, of end of life to be able to get that right. <laughs> and, and I, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of families struggle, um, way long after someone has passed with still questioning, did, did they do the right thing? Did they honor them properly? Um, because they really don't know because they didn't have those conversations. And and that's a lot of guilt to carry around that we don't need to. Yes, well, that's a whole other issue because um, it, it's the best caregivers who, ha who tend to still have guilt, you know, <laughs> yep. they care. Yep, yep, I, I agree with you there. Um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, some of the, the symptoms that you saw were, you know, the falls and the, the skin care and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's hard when somebody falls and you, you know, you know, there's some swelling, you know that it hurts. You don't know if it's broken, but you brought up some really good points of do they have the stamina and do you have the stamina to withstand six hours in the waiting room? trying to figure out and trying to make them understand, you know, why they can't go home and why people are behaving the way they are and, you know, why they're at the hospital to begin with. And um, I know a lot of that stuff just caused my mom a lot of angst. And, yes. um, you know, if, I mean, and sometimes it's kind of funny because I, I think of myself, I'd probably be the last person to bring myself to the hospital. Oh, we'll just wait for the swelling to go down. Get me some ice. I'll put my foot up, you know, and, and yet I'm pushing somebody else out the door because of my fear of what could be, um, yet I'm not doing what I would probably do for myself. Um, and again, with mm -hmm. somebody with dementia, you might not always be able to get them to stay still and to not mobilize, uh, you know, a leg or a foot or an arm if, if you're worried that something could be broken or fractured. So, you know, you have to take all that into account. And um, But knowing your person... And even just having a little travel bag in case there are incidents like that of what brings them calm, calmness. So maybe it's an iPad with some music on it. Um, maybe it's a picture book. Maybe I mean, it could be a zillion different things. But having something like that at the ready can really save you, you know, yes. or an extra yeah. set of clothes or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and you know, those are things that you can just kind of have in your car, you know, anytime you're, you're going out. Cause we don't always know when situations like that are going to arise. But if you're going to the, the doctor, the hospital, um, you know, having that stuff ready, almost kind of like, you know, your baby bag, you know, if someone's going to have a baby, they have that bag waiting <laughs> you know, in the midst and, and not mm -hmm. that you want to set yourself up for a hospital run, but you know, it's a heck of a lot easier to be prepared and to think of that stuff or to even have medical records and, and, you know, medications, you know, if, if they're, if you've got them taken in your phone, so you've got pictures of them. So when you're doing intake or if you have a list, you can just grab and bring, those are 
those are things that we should be thinking about because, you know, if we're anxious in that process, you know, they're just going to mirror that back to us on top of what they're already feeling. And so whatever can keep us as care partners calm will help them too. That's so true. Yes. Um, in fact, it, it's, um, we have, you know, in developing materials for caregivers, we initially were going to just focus on how to manage things at home and how to make decisions at home. But we realized that there's more than that. You, you need some um, guidance on what to do if you're going to the emergency department or going to the hospital or having surgery and these kinds of things, because it really is an all-encompassing issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what you don't want is to have a really bad visit to the emergency department before you think about, oh, gee, you know, maybe I should have brought this or maybe I should have done that. And that's what you're talking about, being prepared in advance. It really yep. does help. Yeah, our um, we have a dementia-friendly group in Roseville, Minnesota. And um, they, in, in fact, I was on the committee, we just developed a whole kind of travel kit. Um, but it's for travel local or um, international. It doesn't make any difference. And we've broken it down in terms of documents that you should just always have with you from... Um, little cards that are very common that say, um, you know, I, I'm traveling with a person with dementia or, you know, I have dementia, please be patient with me. But what we did on the backside was we put contact information because if, if you were in a car accident, people wouldn't know if somebody had dementia. They wouldn't know if you're a care partner for somebody, you know, or if you had a heart attack. And so that person still needs to be covered. So for the care partner, we wrote something like, you know, I'm Sally May, and I'm a care partner for Joe May. Um, if I become incapacitated, please reach out to, you know, um, you know Sally, whatever, and here's her phone number so, uh-huh. so that there's an easy connect. And for the person with dementia, it just says that you know, I've got dementia and this person is caring for me, and here's their contact um, number if I look, you know, if I look vulnerable or I'm struggling. Um, so just real simple things. And then we took um, we took medical information and, you know, tried to condense that um, so it's simple in terms of what types of um, diagnoses people might have, what kind of medication they're on. But even do they speak English? Do they speak at all? Um, How is their eyesight? Do they have a hearing aid? Do they have, you know, dentures? I mean, all of those things come into play for communication. Uh, uh-huh. and stuff. And so that is all free. If people go to the um, city of Roseville, Minnesota's uh, uh, site, um, and then you go under resident services, um, there's a page for Alzheimer's disease, and you can go through the programming and, and find kind of the, the, I think we called it the uh, memory minders travel kit or something like that. Um, and, and if you can't find it there, you know, just give me a holler and, and uh, cause we want to share that with the world and let let people know what's out there and if there's changes that you suggest uh, to it you know let us know because we want to always improve that but we want it accessible you know for people out there how do you spell the name of that town a uh, roseville it's r-o-s-e-v-i-l-l-e got it yeah Yep. So, and we just sent that information along with uh, some other uh, information out to all the memory cafes too. And if you're interested in that, Dr. Sloan, I can just forward that to you. Um, That'd be nice. Okay. I will, I will get that to you. Um, Not a problem. 
Um, let's keep going here. I think, um, gosh, there's just so much to cover. You know, you have spent so many years developing resources for families, you know, on how to basically care better and, and how to manage things better and incorporate, and you've incorporated a lot of this into your new book. Why don't you tell people why you wrote the book and, and how it's organized? I, I was just, like I said, I'm so impressed with this book. Um, first, it's nice and big, and it's got decent-sized print, and it's got little call-out boxes, and it's, uh, I mean, when you open a page, you know what you're going to get. Um, it's it's easy to decipher, and uh, I, I really appreciate the time and thought that went into that. But why don't you tell people a little bit about the book and and why you why you felt it necessary to to um, even even uh, publish? Well, we found that um, about a third of caregivers of persons with dementia don't use the internet, mm-hmm. so we knew that there was an audience there that really wanted to use something. Um, our guidance for the whole process really was um, a, an advisory group we put together with the help of um, people from the Duke um, Alzheimer's Support Program. Mm-hmm. And we had nine caregivers of persons with dementia at various stages of the illness who met with us every month. And essentially, we would tell them what we were thinking, and they would tell us, they would respond to it. Mm-hmm. And so... From that, many of the ideas for the book generated from that group. For example, we have a one-pager in there that puts most of the medical information on a single page where they could write it down. And um, it's sort of like what you talked about um, with Roseville, except you've got some functional stuff that's kind of nice that we don't have. But still, they wanted a one-pager that they could just stick on the refrigerator and grab it if they had to go somewhere that had all the kind of contact information. Mm-hmm. That's something we didn't think of it. Um, we did the sections on how to, you know, what to do in the emergency department or what to do in the hospital because they recommended it. Initially, we were going to focus on giving caregivers the tools they needed to feel more confident making decisions about things like, you know, somebody fell down or somebody cut themselves or somebody has diarrhea, what to do. Mm-hmm. And, for, and so a major part of the book is two pages on over 50 different common symptoms and signs that people have, like diarrhea or falls or this type of thing. And within each, we wanted to give caregivers information about what to look for, you know, what's important to look for, what are signs that it could be an emergency, and what are signs that you might be able to manage it at home. And then we provide tips, actually pretty specific instructions on what to do, how to manage it at home. And then we also try to have a little focus on how the caregiver themselves can stay safe or free of illness. uh, Because if caregivers aren't careful or mindful, they, they can get themselves in trouble and that doesn't help anybody. Exactly. And that's a very overlooked um, so much of the time, we're not a we're not a society that really thinks about staying healthy ourselves. We're we really, in in many ways, focus on caring for someone else, and it's it's like a it's like a win lose situation. It's either us or them. Instead of everybody has to stay healthy and balanced and um, in the equation, or it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so then, as we were developing the book, um, we 
wanted to work with a graphic designer and we found someone, actually someone gave me a recommendation. This is someone who has done uh, materials for the National Institute on Aging. And so we knew they were good. And it's a woman in New Mexico was just fabulous to work with. We made an initial version of the book, uh, printed it ourselves and had 50 caregivers use it for six months. Mm -hmm. And then we got their feedback. And once again, we found it improved their confidence. They loved it. Um, and we made some revisions based on that. And the other thing I should mention is um, and when we talked to, because we've done so much research on this, we've got a lot of information from different sources. One of the things we did, we talked to about 200 physicians that work with older people. And we asked, what doesn't happen when you talk to caregivers on the phone at home that you wish would happen? And they said, you know, if they're in a nursing home or they're in, a, in the office, you know, we can get their vital signs. But caregivers don't necessarily know how to systematically, you know, check their temperature, know what their normal is, because it tends to be lower than um, younger adults, um, check their breathing rate, check their pulse, um, check their blood pressure, if, you know, uh, especially if they have a blood pressure problem. Because it turns out that what medical people do is the vital signs is the best single source of information to tell them if somebody is really sick or not, mm -hmm. how uh -huh. urgent it is. And so we developed materials. We work with a, a really nice um, uh, company that does um, very good video work. And we've got video materials that are available on the web. And the book um, gives the website um, so that people can access them and um, get that information as well. And we've got tips on how to detect de dehydration or how to detect pain. So some other tools to help family members um, be better at making decisions. Okay. Well, that's uh, that sounds great. Um, I did not realize that you had some video there, so that's that's fantastic to have. Um, can you talk about um, <clears throat> maybe some of the the basics here? And you know, you've got this kind of color coded at the top from. You know, you've got the blue section, and then you've got the green section, and then you have kind of the, the red or rust section. Can you talk about those three sections and, and why you sectioned them off the way you did? Well, that's what our graphic designer did. Okay. Um, and so, and I don't have the book in front of me, so you have to tell me what color it is. But the biggest section is really the, the series of two pages about signs and symptoms, mm -hmm. um, like you know, like um, abdominal pain, and they are in alphabetical order, so they have one color. Okay. And then there's another color for the um, how to work with the um, medical providers in different medical settings, mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of the next section. And um, I believe that the other color is for kind of for the other sections we have. Okay. Um, yeah, because at the end, it looks like it's, you've got kind of an end of life, um, you know, and you're talking about anything from hospitals to surgeries to in-home care, right. um, emergency contacts, um, primary providers, you know, and so it's really kind of that whole healthcare system in itself. And then you've got a section on medication safety and management, which I think is so critical um, that people right. That's one we did kind of near the end, again, because the caregivers, actually people who were using it, um, wanted that section. 
And mm -hmm. so we've got things like pic pictures of different types of pills, not, not to identify an exact pill, but be able to describe what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then a lot of information about medicines that are specifically used for um, Alzheimer's and other dementias and kind of things like how can, you know, should you or should you not disguise medicine, what to do when somebody doesn't want to take it and things like that. They're tough issues. Yeah. Very tough stuff. Yeah. Well, and then you've got, um, you know, this section on, you know, where you really do break down taking a pulse and blood pressure and um, dehydration, which is just such a huge, huge issue for so many. Um, they don't want to drink a lot because then they'll have to go to the bathroom a lot and, you know, they might not make it. And then, you know, it, it just, there's a whole spiral um, with that section as well. I just, like I said, I, I thought this was just laid out really nice um, with your topics and you've got, you know, possible signs of emergencies, other signs, um, tips per, uh, for providing relief at home, basic facts about things, what to watch out for, um, taking care of your own um, safety. I mean, it's just, it's very, it's a very easy read and it's a book that um, I, I, I think will kind of almost be the new Bible for some people to have close to them in terms of, um, in terms of use there. I love also how you've got some stuff in here about how to help someone go from sitting to standing so that nobody gets hurt. Um, and some strategies there, because I think there's a lot of falls that can happen uh, for both the person with dementia and um, the person caring for them. Um, you know, that can really be thrown for a loop in that situation. So it's just, um, it's just, it's, it's uh, a fantastic uh, book and one I think that really fills a gap um, of need out there. So Kudos to you uh, for all the work that you've done in um, accumulating uh, all of this research and, and putting it together in an easy-to-read fashion for people. Uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really quite, quite fantastic. And again, I, I so appreciate it being oversized. Um, sometimes people try to make it small so it fits in a purse, but realistically, how many people are carrying you know, a medical book in their purse, you know, mm -hmm. with them. Uh, well, we had a little, we had a little battle with the publisher about it because they wanted to make it smaller. And then once they really looked at it, they said, no, that doesn't. And, and it's a real credit to them that they wanted to keep it so that it would best meet the needs of the consumer. Well, and you know, that's what it should do. <laughs> no, that's really what it should do. The only, the only thing that I would say, if you can, and this is a publisher thing too, um, with a book like this, I think it needs a wider margin in the band, in the fold. Um, mm -hmm. Because for some people, it's it's hard for them to kind of pull those pages apart. And, you know, as eyesight declines, um, it's just uh, it, it, it's just more difficult for, for people to read sometimes when it's curved. Um, but again, I, I know publishers, it's, that's not their status and they don't like it. But times are changing and it's time to change. And, um, and really understand who, who the audience is. Um, you also have room on these pages for people to take some, some notes. You know, you've got some white space in there, which I appreciate too. And I think, uh, I think care partners, um, will like that as well, because I see a lot of books where they highlight and make notes. And, and that's one of the things they comment about, um, being user-friendly. 
So good, 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 good job. Do you have, do you have plans for anything else after this one or anything else in the works? Oh, um, not on this particular topic. Um, we work, work in some other areas as well. We um, are bathing without a battle. Um, we just have finished doing a Spanish version for caregivers whose Spanish is their um, primary language. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's mainly for people, you know, if family members at home are pretty good at figuring out how to do bathing, although we, um, some of them can use some specific techniques, but particularly ones in um, settings like nursing homes really need some help. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was a labor of love, getting that on the web. It's on the web now. People can take it for free. Mm -hmm. um, you just Google bathing without a battle. And um, there's a whole three-hour training on different methods of bathing people with Alzheimer's disease. It is, we've got three years of kind of free, um, they can, we can give continuing education credits and all this thanks to the Retirement Research Foundation. And I should mention that the National Institutes on Health helped us with resources for this book. So um, the, the, the world out there is helping. Uh, we just need more of it. Yep. Well, in the bathing without a battle, I wish I would have known about that early on with my with my own mom because, you know, she used to love the water and then all of a sudden she just hated it and couldn't figure out why. And uh, Tipa Snow was actually one who who uh, had told me that um, people lure, um, lose a lot of their fat pads. You know, even if they're heavy, they still lose their fat pads and their nerves are closer. Um, and so that pounding of the water you know, hurts, uh, many of them. And so I remember going to the nursing home and saying, you know, I want to change out all of your shower heads to, to rain handheld shower heads. And, um, and that just made a significant difference, you know, with mm -hmm. her along with starting at the feet instead of stopping at the top where they're cold and, um, dripping and just getting them used to the water. And I, there's just so many things, like you said, that could be done that, you know, I didn't know to do or having a towel around them if they're cold and let them have the towel on them. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you you would love that training then because we have it, it was it's all based on videos we did with caregivers and people with Alzheimer's. And we've got lots of before and after videos. And it's it's really pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, wonderful. And the um, do you know what the URL is for them to go to to be able to get the videos? What I do is I Google bathing without a battle. Okay. And um, it's, it'll come right up. Okay. Um, but you, and you also said that you had some videos to go with the book for like taking pulse and things like that. Yes. If you look in the section where we have, you know, how to take vital signs mm -hmm. on the book on the first page in pretty big type, it has a URL. Okay. So I just have to look for it. It's probably right in front of my face. That would be typical for me. <laughs> and I'm not seeing it because I'd love to be able to give that out to people. Um, but again, if you go and purchase the book, um, you will have that all at your at your ready there. And that's something that we can probably probably add. I am not seeing it, but um, it, it, it's actually on the page before the the, the uh, discussion starts. You know, there's there's a um, um, if I guess it's a um, a topic page, we mm -hmm. usually have a quote or something like that. I think that's what we put or we put in the bottom of the next page. I'm sorry, I just 
nope, that's okay. That's okay. I'm just uh I'm just not seeing it. I'll send it to you. Oh wait, here here it is. Videos at oh Wyatt found it. It's alls med a l z med m e d dot u n c dot e d u forward slash video. So a l z m e d dot u n c dot e d u forward slash videos. So that that's great. And then the best way for people to get a hold of you, uh, Dr. Sloan, is that through your email address? Um, or else um, through the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Okay. Either way. Okay, and um, that is listed on, both are listed on the, the website there. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It was uh, it was just great to chat and to learn more about about you and your history and all the research that you're doing and how you are really helping move dementia care forward. Very much appreciate all your work. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Great. Thank you. Um, for those of you who are listening who are new to our channel, you might want to uh, check out a live and social uh, a show that is called What's for Dinner Tonight with Rachel Perrin, who is a culinary director for Kowalski's Market. Uh, they come up with a great conversation, and it's just a short podcast, only 10 or 15 minutes, about ideas of uh, what to make for dinner. And they also have a great website for seasonal menus as well at kowalskis.com. That's K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-S.com. Um, again, I want to remind people, uh, it's not too late to sign up for our dementia-friendly cruise, November 11th through the 18th. You can just go to uh, Alzheimer's Speaks on our homepage and, and uh, click on uh, the tabs uh, for projects and initiatives and then go to our cruise page. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really getting a wonderful response around the country. Um, as far as our uh, shows go here on Alzheimer's Speaks, everything is archived. We've been doing this for six years, so we have tons of great information that's available for you. Our last Dementia Chats that was published was on dementia and depression, grief, sadness, and, um, and loneliness, and uh, really an interesting conversation. And again, our experts on Dementia Chats all have dementia. And so they really give us some great, great insights. Those are all free. And again, you can find those on our on Alzheimer's Speaks initiatives and projects page. I'm going to be doing some um, upcoming uh, screenings of the film His Neighbor Phil. Um, both right now are in Minnesota on the 18th. I'm going to be at Bell Ray Senior Living. On the 31st, I'm going to be at Silver Creek on Maine in Maple Grove. On the blog, you might want to check out a beautiful poem about Alzheimer's that I, a wife wrote about her husband. There's also a, an interesting post about Independence Day and what does that make you think of. Uh, it has been wonderful chatting with you all. If you are looking for a memory cafe, uh, which is for people with early memory loss and their care partners, um, please, uh, please check them out. Uh, you can, again, find the Memory Cafe on our site. Uh, again, go to the Projects and Initiatives page, and there's one for Memory Cafes, and scroll down. You'll see a big kind of, kind of uh, purple-pink uh, 
country, and you click on that, you'll be brought to Calendar Cards, who has made, I think, one of the best directories and easy-to-find directories uh, to find if there is a, a memory cafe close to you. And last, I just want to uh, let you know we also have our helpful tip sheet um, out. And if you are interested in that, just shoot me an email at lori at alzheimerspeaks.com. It has uh, it's a trifold, and it just is loaded with great information. Thanks so much, and I uh, look forward to talking to you next time. Bye, everyone. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.